Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. The Paris Agreement that was adopted on December 12th was a triumph of diplomacy. It is also an affirmation of idealism in international relations, that the anarchy of the international system can be transcended to find global solutions to global problems. Also, the fact that the international community found a way to push the needle in the right direction on as complex an issue as climate change makes other global challenges suddenly seem a little less daunting. The Paris Agreement itself is a profoundly inventive document. On the line to discuss some of the finer points of contention in the agreement, how they were resolved, and why certain countries like India played a key role in crafting certain parts of the outcome is Neil Bhatia, a policy associate with the Century Foundation. We discuss some key questions that this agreement addresses, like how can the international community verify compliance with the accord, and how the question of so-called climate finance will work. We also discuss the role of the United States in helping to shape this final outcome. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more about me, about the podcast, about the kind of topics we cover, the people we interview, and what we're all about. And now here is Neil Batya of the Century Foundation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, you'll often hear, especially in the American context, that with agreements like this, there's a chance that countries might try to backslide or might try to cheat. And for Americans, at least, you know, when they raise this issue, they're thinking first and foremost about China. Earlier this year, there was a report in the New York Times that the Chinese had miscalculated how much CO2 emissions they had produced from their coal-fired power plants. And this is you know, a popular talking point for the Republican Party. So I think you know, for the US and the EU in, in particular, uh, they wanted to make sure that this agreement would have some sort of mechanism for countries not only to you know, report what their emissions were and what actions they were taking to reduce them, but have that somehow verified by an independent authority. And sort of the the flip side of this, uh, from the perspective of the Chinese and some other developing country participants, was that they don't want as much of an onus on them to be completely transparent about these things when the bulk of the effort is supposed to come from developed country parties. Uh, and I think, you know, eventually what you see in the agreement language is something of a compromise that leans closer to what I think American and EU negotiators want, 
which is it, this agreement does set up a transparency mechanism through the UNFCCC where countries, all countries, developing and developed, will be required to submit information about greenhouse gas inventories and provide verifiable scientific data, and that there would be some sort of independent expert committee that could uh, more or less weigh in on how accurate they think those those readings are. And so it's not entirely clear who would sit on that committee and what their reports would look like, but I think sort of the, the mechanism going forward is there. And is the idea that countries with the technical capacity and the ability to to, to train scientists or, or bureaucrats in other countries on how to measure emissions would somehow be tapped into this effort? Yeah, I think in, in addition to the, the mechanism itself, there's language in the agreement that talks about uh, capacity building for developing countries to try to measure these things. Um, you know, China obviously is an advanced industrial nation. It has a pretty sophisticated scientific capacity. Uh, most recently, it has launched two satellites whose purpose is to help it catalog greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but if you're talking about, you know, small island developing states or least developed countries and, you know, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, there are uh, obvious capacity challenges there. And I think, you know, the UN in this agreement was quite um, quite upfront about being willing to provide assistance. Um, you know, the details aren't there. They only speak about it sort of in a very general sense. But I think going forward, you know, in, in several of the, you know, intended nationally determined contributions, which are each country's plans for dealing with climate change, uh, many of them do speak um, quite explicitly about needing assistance on scientific and technical matters. And I think, you know, in order to make this agreement really work, uh, developed countries are going to have to come through with, you know, either money to help countries do this or some kind of technical guidance, whether it's through organizations like the World Bank or the OECD to do this. Um, you know, those, those sort of details I think we'll see sort of as at follow-up uh, conference of parties, you know, next year. So this was a pretty decent outcome, I'd, I'd say then, for that those in, in what became known as the High Ambition Coalition, which included the U.S. and, and Europe, among many other countries, were pushing for a uh, robust verification mechanism. And it sounds like it, that's, that's included in the deal. Yeah, I think, that, you know, they won on, on that point. And um, one particular point that they also won out was the, um, you know, what you sort of call the ratchet mechanism for raising ambitions. So, you know, most countries have submitted their INDCs looking ahead for their greenhouse gas emission trajectories up through 2025 or 2030. Uh, and the idea that's embedded in this agreement, at least, is that, you know, you would have five-year cycles of reviews and issuing new plans that are, at least on paper, meant to be uh, more ambitious than what's going to come uh, from earlier. Right. Because um, the current INDCs, when all tallied together, don't get us to that target of two degrees or even 1.5 degrees. And in fact, it's something closer to three and a half degrees. Uh, yeah, that's right. I think if you, depending on which studies you look at, I've seen sort of a range between 2.7 if the most aggressive action promised is taken and then the upper limit being around the, the 3.5 degree. 
but saying that if nothing was done, if none of these INDCs had been agreed upon or had been presented, I should say, at the Paris talks, then their trajectory was closer to like five or six degrees. Um, so the idea is this is a step in the right direction, but it's not enough. So the so-called ratchet up mechanism, whereby countries meet every five years, is a way to keep maintaining that high level of, of ambition and keeping keep refining each country's national commitments. Is that right? Right, absolutely. Okay. And so the the schedule as it looks now is that um, you know the UNFCCC everyone's going to get together to do a first sort of long-term stock taking in 2018 to look at where everybody is on that long-term goal. So, you know, no more than 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and certainly an effort to get it no more than at 1.5 degrees. And then what follows on from that is, you know, in 2020, you'll start seeing um, a new set of INDCs published. And depending on what countries have submitted already, it might be the same thing that what they've done pre-Paris, or it might be um, a new one. And so that gets updated on a five-year cycle. And then beginning in 2023, uh, they get together and look at you know, the, the INDC from the previous, you know, if it's 2020 or 2025. So in the 2023 cycle, they say, okay, you know, this is our best estimate for what these INDCs do. And if we still are serious about meeting, you know, that range of between 1.5 and and two degrees, then this is what we all need to do. And that essentially that's how we're sort of going to keep the foot on the gas pedal of uh, aggressive climate action. Um, so another key complex issue that was tying up the negotiations was this question of, of finance. Um, my understanding is that coming out of Copenhagen um, in 2009, there was an agreement on paper, a political agreement, not a, a sort of actual legal agreement, to uh, transfer some $100 billion in investments uh, to the developing world to help them manage climate change, develop in climate neutral ways, that sort of thing. Um, and that this question of what would count as monies against this contribution, whether this $100 billion per year um, is, is something that should be included in the final agreement was all up for, for debate. Uh, how would you frame the climate finance debate and how was it finally resolved? So I think, you know, among the sort of many questions that you know, this agreement is supposed to address, the finance one is probably the trickiest. Um, for one thing, you know, there is, as you indicated, this $100 billion a year by 2020 promise. Um, and, you know, just in, in, you know, a sense of flat dollar terms, we're not really anywhere near um, reaching that figure. But this, this uh, figure, it, it, there, there's question though, right? Whether it's in official development assistance or private financial capital. Right. So there's, there's a dispute about how much is public sector money and how much is private sector money. Uh, within the context of the Green Climate Fund in particular, which is one of the sort of three, um, three of the biggest multilateral funds that's supposed to handle this money, there's a question of how much is for mitigation, which is, you know, reducing... Uh, greenhouse gas emissions that are occurring already, and how much is adaptation, which is dealing with the climate change that's sort of um, baked into the system, if you will. And so, you know, the preference of countries like the United States and the European Union is that as much as possible, this money should go 
towards mitigation, um, helping countries overhaul their energy sectors to produce more renewable energy rather than fossil fuel energy, um, and sort of uh, much more more forward-looking, whereas a lot of the developing country parties want um, sort of a dedicated part of that pot of money to go through adaptation because, you know, they know full well that there are a lot of climate change effects that are occurring now that are certain to occur in the future and that will impact them in a in a manner that's disproportionate to their overall contribution to climate change in the first place. And is this what was considered loss and damage in the text? That's part of it as well. Um, you know, on the developing side, there was sort of a, a clear request that money be set aside purely as, as compensation. And I think, you know, the U.S. and the EU won out in this argument, um, basically saying that, you know, we'll set up a loss and damage framework, but its main focus will sort of be making insurance products available to developing country nations so that they can um, bear sort of the long-term costs on their own through different multilateral methods. But there wouldn't be sort of a direct transfer of wealth from developed country to developing country parties. So it wouldn't be um, like a reparations, which is no, what it wouldn't they be were reparations because um, that would be you know an anathema certainly in the United States to frame it that way, and it would also be problematic um, in the EU context. And so the sort of the and then one more part of this is you know this controversy over what counts. Um, you know. It wasn't as explicit in Copenhagen, but there's certainly the expectation among developing country parties that this was supposed to be new money. So, you know, whatever ODA level funding you had in 2009, you're not really supposed to count that towards climate uh, related assistance going forward. And I should say ODA is called official development assistance, which is basically what governments uh, commit to providing. Yeah. Like, so basically, you're, you're talking about, you know, the, the the budget for foreign assistance for, you know, the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Sometimes people drop those uh, acronyms uh, and assume everyone knows. I know. Yeah, I, no. I would bet that at least 50 percent of my audience, if not more, uh, is down with that lingo. But, you know, well, that's know. good. That's good. OK. Anyway, sorry. Uh, go on. Yeah. So, I mean, prior to the opening of the COP, you know, the OECD, which is sort of a think tank for the club of the wealthiest developed nations, came out with a report that said, you know, we're we're pretty fairly on our way to getting, you know, to that 100 billion figure. We're actually a little bit further along than than we think. And I think, you know, a lot of developing country parties, particularly um, India, said, well, wait a minute, you know, you're you're counting money that's been earmarked but not dispersed that doesn't you know we don't consider that money because it's not in our account. that's a classic un trick by the way to count pledges as opposed to actual uh contributions that have been dispersed right um uh, anyway and, sorry go ahead and yeah and part of this is you know they're counting existing programs um that had predated copenhagen and this 100 billion dollar year promise as money towards this. So it was sort of a, um, a major debating point before the opening of the COP. Um, and I think, you know, with this agreement, 
it sort of still punts a lot of these questions, I think. Um, the $100 billion figure is still in there with that 2020 deadline. Um, but the, the text of the agreement, you know, frames it as a floor uh, rather than a ceiling. So that, you know, it would be at least $100 billion a year and that developed country parties would try to make it a little bit more. Uh, and then sort of the second part of the finance question is that by 2025, they're going to come up with a new figure, uh, ostensibly a higher figure of money that they'll pledge um, as transfers to developing country parties, uh, which is fine on paper. But, you know, as any, you know, negotiator from India or a small online developing state would tell you, um, the, the promises doesn't don't really mean much. Uh, they certainly haven't meant much since 2009. Uh, so I think, you know, this will continue to be something that gets brought up both within the UNFCCC framework as well as on a bilateral basis, you know, with the United States in their dealings with India on climate and energy questions and, you know, with various other nations as well. So, so the, the, the questions surrounding finance are not over, but they've been resolved to a point that everyone feels like that they kind of came out a little bit ahead on this. Yeah, I think so. To, you know, to the extent possible, people have gone away thinking they've won at least something and, you know, their red lines are are mostly intact. And because at least in, in part, right, the U.S. and EU um, ensured that or their insistence ensured that this part of the agreement that mentioned $100 billion was not in the legally binding part of the text. Um, which was something that was their red line, at least in, in the U.S. You can hardly imagine that the kind of political debate that would transpire if um, there was that kind of legal requirement. Um, right. This is this is definitely in the in the in the um, should and not shall part. Right. Right. And uh, but but the idea that is at least a hundred billion dollars, as opposed to a target of a hundred billion dollars, is a, um, a, a a win for the developing world. Yeah, and, and certainly that. There would be a process between 2020 and 2025 where there'd be a new number um, that you know negotiators arrive at, and then that would be sort of um, a similar ratcheting up of ambition alongside what um, everyone is doing with their INDCs. Um, so you've mentioned India a, a few times now, and I there was this stretch of reporting, probably like halfway through the Paris talks. Uh, that focused on India's role as like the make or break country for the entire outcome of this agreement. Can you talk a little bit about India's role in these negotiations and, and why their participation was uh, watched so closely? Sure. I think part of this goes back to 2009 and the disappointment with Copenhagen that, you know, we didn't really have an agreement, um, certainly to the extent that we have out of Paris. And, and part of the reason is that there was a, a fairly stark divide at that point between the U.S. and the EU on the one hand and China and India on the other hand in terms of who would be doing what and who would be responsible for what. Um, and I think going into the anticipation for this COP, uh, you know, th there were concerns about what the Indians and the Chinese would agree to, um, you know, officially under the framework, they are still both developing country parties, non-Annex One nations. So the requirements on them are less stringent than they are on either the U.S. or the EU. 
Um, but you know, starting in early 2014, you saw concerted diplomatic action by the Obama administration to to get both countries on board with a fairly robust agreement. And I think that process bore fruit more quickly and more prominently with China. Um, you had the November 2014 announcement of a climate deal between the U.S. and China, where the Chinese at long last had said that you know they would try their best to peak their emissions by 2030, which surprised many in, in the climate community. Uh, and they would also be raising their ambition on non-fossil fuel uh, energy sources. And I think this sort of on that track was much better news than most people were expecting. Um, but by contrast, the Indians were going a little bit more slowly. Um, they made it very clear that their development trajectory would preclude any kind of announcement about uh, a peak year of admissions and that um, they still had a lot of room to grow and that as far as they were concerned, a lot of that growth would be fueled by um, fossil fuel, uh, in particular the coal. So going into the negotiations, um, their role, you know, as you say, was considered pivotal. Um, they were very nervous about a long-term decarbonization goal and what that would mean for um, their coal plans. They were very concerned about the financing because they are trying to make an effort on renewables, but uh, it's very expensive and a lot of the technology is held by Western companies and the Indians are very concerned about a lot of the intellectual property costs and so forth. Um, and, you know, they were also opposed to a five-year review mechanism because they didn't want to come to successive conferences and be seen as as the bad guy because they were still lagging behind. Um, so how were some of their concerns then uh, allayed, pr uh, particularly on, on the technology uh, issue that you just referenced with the IP protections that are in place? So some of the some of their concerns were allayed. Some of them, I think, are still present and we'll hear more about um, as this process unfolds. Uh, for one thing, I think the chances that they would scuttle the talks overall, I think, decreased substantially once you saw the sort of public unveiling of this high ambition coalition that involved not only the U.S. and the EU, but a lot of small island developing states and a lot of other members of the G77, um, where you know India had traditionally been a leader on some of these issues. But this time around, they had made it very clear that you know there was going to be some kind of agreement at Paris and that diplomatically, if the Indians tried to make too much trouble, then um, they would be sort of on their own in a way that I don't think they would have been in, in 2009 when the divide between developing and developed was, was much starker. Uh, so I think, you know, in this agreement, you see, um, particularly in, in Article 4, about sort of a discussion of responsibilities that, um, you know, there there's talk about a global peaking of greenhouse gas emissions, but there's still just a little bit of wiggle room for the Indians, because there's language that says, you know, we recognize that peaking will take longer for developing country parties, 
um, and that you know this should be on the basis of equity and in the context of sustainable development and efforts to eradicate poverty. And, and that's language that's that's music to the ears of indie negotiators, because it means that you know there isn't an expectation that they'll have artificial deadlines for you know use of coal or anything placed on them prematurely. Um, so we are speaking just a few days after the agreement in Paris was reached. Uh, what are our wonks like you? Uh, looking at in the coming days, weeks, months, maybe years uh, following this agreement? What, what's next on, on your, how, how, what, what sort of questions that are lingering are, are you looking to see uh, how they might be resolved? Um, I think first and foremost, over the long term, I think, you know, what does the transparency mechanism look like? And what exactly will have to be reported, and what on what timeline, and you know who who who's on the technical committee that verifies some of these things, and these are sort of nitty gritty questions that you know future cops will will take on. And I think if that mechanism is fairly robust, then I think you know this agreement will have set a fairly strong framework um, on that end. Uh, the other sort of key question, you know, again, goes back to the money, because um, that's sort of the, the the grease that'll make the engine of this agreement run fairly smoothly, smoothly. Um, and in that respect, 2016 looms large, uh, not for any reasons that pertain directly to the UNFCCC or to the UN, uh, but because of U.S. selections, um, I think. For the Obama administration, they have a quite an ambitious set of climate actions, EPA's Clean Power Plan, uh, fuel economy standards for automobiles, and all these things that um, you know are on track to be quite effective, but uh, have been done almost largely or almost exclusively uh, through executive action, which means that a future president if he or she so wished, could roll a lot of those back. Um, and sort of the second part of this, uh, again, um, is the money. Uh, our pledge to the Green Climate Fund, um, sort of a down payment, if you will, uh, has been held up by the U.S. Senate. Uh, you have senators like James Inhofe, who have called the Green Climate Fund a slush fund for the U.N. Um, and have basically stated quite clearly that, you know, U.S. money will go to this over their dead bodies. Um, and, you know, for better or worse, a lot of our credibility as a climate leader is staked to getting that financing sorted out and making sure things like the clean power plan remain on the books, um, not only through the Obama administration, but the next presidential administration and, and the one after that. Um, and sort of the the legislative bottleneck side of this um, has been an issue. Um, I think you know the international community was cognizant of that for this agreement, and that's why so very little of it is actually legally binding. Um, and the parts that it, are are not requiring a Senate ratification either, right? They're just sort of included in uh, the original UNFCC agreement, which was right. signed back what like ninety. Four or something like that. Uh, it was signed in ninety two by right. 
by Jeb Bush's father, George H.W. Bush. Um, I'm not sure how he feels about his son saying he would not have gone to the Paris negotiations at all. Um, but that's, that's a discussion for another day, probably. Um, well, Neil, thank you so much for this, for, for framing this so nicely and, uh, you know, going a little bit in the weeds with me and I appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out the archives. If you're a regular listener, please do consider leaving a review on iTunes for the reasons that I ask you nearly every episode to leave a review, namely that it helps other people discover the podcast who are similarly interested in foreign policy issues. All right. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Bye.